0: Pops in a pod, Pops in a pod. Hi, welcome to Pops in a Pod. I am Nadir Pop. And I'm Peter Pop. Another episode and another author on the episode. I like this trend, you know, getting authors getting to know about their books and their understanding and their perspective on, on the subject that they have written. Don't you think, Peter?
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I think maybe this is something we should continue as a trend in 2022. I think a lot of people have spent time in the last couple of years kind of writing books. So it'll be fun to hear from them. And if you're wondering who our previous authors were, well, last week we got uh, Binal Gandhi and Sunera Sangvi, who were the authors for Piggy bank to portfolio, how to make kids financially smarter. And this time we're going to talk about relationships. Well, the reason why we're talking about relationships is because our guest is not a parent. He's written a book about millennials across India. The thing that actually caught our attention was a press article that he did where he made a statement saying millennials prefer arranged marriages as they can't afford to love. This really struck a nerve with Nadir and me, and we were very curious to know more about what he found out from fellow millennials.
0: That's right. And continuing our other trend of talking about things outside of parenting, which is, you know, relationships and what it's like to be in relationships. And if, if you've heard our earlier episodes on, on dating and digital dating and just Um, you know, getting couples to talk about their various relationships, We, we just figured that, hey, let's get this guy who's written a book on what millennials really want. Obviously, uh, he, he spans uh, various other things uh, within his book uh, outside of marriage and relationships as well. So today we have a young 20-something, Vivan Marwa, a user, researcher and author of What Millennials Want. For this book, he traveled more than 30,000 kilometers across 13 Indian states and interviewed close to a thousand millennials, educators, business leaders and policy makers to investigate economic aspirations, social views and political attitudes of young indians but we are going to talk to him specifically about marriages and relationships so peter let's just jump in
1: all right let's get straight into our chat with vivan hi vivan
0: thank you so much for coming on the podcast we are very excited to talk to you because there are just so many things to ask you
2: uh, thanks for having me It's uh, i'm really looking
0: forward to our conversation but before that just a Quick backstory. So, Peter and I both come from the media background. Uh, in fact, our entire career graph has been in the media with its production, marketing, um, both in terms of digital and mainline, right? So, when we came across your book, What Millennials Want, uh, we were just very intrigued, right? Uh, as, as marketers, um, it's it's very basic that you, you believe in in data, right? Uh, data is something that is so, so important for us. Um, and we work with these data sets to create these wonderful strategies, uh, and, and ads, and campaigns, you know, based on data and insights. So for us, when we came across that book, and when we realized that, hey, you know what, everyone's talking about millennials, everyone wants to know, you know, what are these millennials doing? And obviously, now we're getting into Gen Z and Gen Alpha and God knows what. So, when you were writing this book, I'm sure there must have been a very broad question, which is why are millennials in India such an important generation for you? What let, Let's start with that. Let's start with the basics.
2: Um, So, you know, that's a great question. And why millennials are so important is because of the number of millennials in India. So just for context, millennials are people born between 1981 and 1996, which is a 15-year time span. But in that 15 years, there's roughly 440 million Indians that were born in that period. What does that mean? That's more than the population of the United States and Canada combined. And that's more than half the population of Europe. That's about half the population of Africa. So that means that this is the world's single largest group of consumers, of users, of voters, of uh, of, of citizens, and of people. And and uh, I mean the numbers speak for themselves. So why they're important is because Indian millennials today they decide national elections they decide uh, business strategies they decide you know economic division, i mean economic uh, trajectories of india and it, you know are already occupying positions of power and in the next three years will dominate positions of power in india
1: yeah and that's so interesting because i mean nader and i've been in multiple brainstorms and multiple kind of business meetings where the question you get into to talk to somebody is like okay so who's your target audience who do you want to do? and they're like millennials and, I'm telling you, the if I think the number of times I've been in those meetings where everyone wants to focus on millennials, but when no actual millennials are sitting in the room talking about it, right? It's so strange uh, in there.
2: No, I was just going to say, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, everyone who seems to have an opinion of millennials is not a millennial. <laughs> um, and so my book sort of centers the conversation around millennials. And of course, it's written by me who and, uh, and I'm a millennial.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I must uh, commend you on your book, What Millennials Want, because it's quite an interesting read. And uh, both Nader and I managed to get copies of it. But, you know, we have a lot of questions about the book. But before we get to it, right, one thing I really loved is that you did a lot of primary research, right? And you went and actually met a lot of people whose stories you've told in uh, the book. Just take us back to before all of it started I mean I'm sure you had some kind of hypothesis in there and I really am curious to know was it always meant to be a book or was it something else that you had planned that later became a book
2: no you know that's a really interesting question because I uh, a couple of years ago I was you know a young 22 year old working at a think tank in Delhi and it was really interesting work I got to rub shoulders with you know very influential people, Shashi Tharoor, you know, people from all all walks of life. Um, And what I began to realize is like, you know, we're doing really impactful work, but we don't uh, actually understand the people that we are trying to serve and the people we're writing policy for. And when I say that, I mean young people, I mean young Indians who are the future of India. So India has a median age of 28, which means that about half of the population is 28 or under the age of 28. But the understanding of Indian youth in, you know, Delhi and Mumbai and the corporate centers in these places and the corridors of power is that this is, you know, an entitled generation addicted to the internet, addicted to social media. And I would say, hey, you know, that's not actually true. And the reason why I knew that, to not be true is because, you know, I have a lot of exposure to small town India. My grandparents live in Bhopal and I visit them every four to six weeks. And life over there is just very different from life in the big cities. And that's when I began to realize we're really missing out on, you know, a really crucial component of India and of Indian youth. And so that's sort of how the book project came about. And to answer the second part of your question, I actually didn't know it was going to be a book project because at first I was just tweeting and, you know, I was, I would actively share my insights on Twitter and then write about them for different publications. And that's when I began to realize, okay, you know, people are really interested in, in these dispatches that I'm sharing from small town India. So why not make that a book? And so the book is What Millennials Want, which is, you know, really an understanding and investigation of Indian millennials who primarily live uh, in small-town India and are ignored by the traditional media and power brokers.
1: Wow. Honestly, I think you have just given such a great validation to Twitter, <laughs> in India especially, right? <laughs> I mean, like there was a time yes. where people would be like, what's with Twitter? Se kya hota hai? Oh, I mean, if anyone has been on Twitter in the last few years, you've realized what it's primarily uh, filled off. So I must commend you for a great use of Twitter and just kind of amplifying such kind of stuff, right? Because you, you don't really read it. And I'm glad all of that kind of came into a book, which, you know, maybe my son somewhere down the line will read.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To understand his dad and and mom, I'm I'm sure. I, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that. I that's hope it's a classic. Thing. I hope it's a classic. Twenty years from now, ten years well, by from now. by
0: then, I'm I'm sure it will be. And I hope he doesn't go. Pff, they didn't know anything about millennials. I knew what a millennial <laughs> about, you know, because <laughs> uh, you know. I mean, you did mention the whole aspect of this generation is so entitled and and so on and so forth for for various reasons. But um, coming. Back to Twitter, and I'll I'll use it as a launchpad to move into my next question. It's Twitter is is a commentary field, right? You you say something, and then everyone has opinions, and everyone wants to say something, and you know, just basically a voice that they want want to hear, especially especially when it comes to relationships and marriage, and which they're not even at all involved in in any case, but they want to talk about other people. So what we really noticed interestingly about your book and w- where be honest, our focus um, as fathers, as husbands, um, in terms of relationship, right? We realize that in your research, respondents said that marrying outside their religion was out of bounds of reality or imagination. I mean, that's a very loaded statement to say. Why, why do you think that that happened? And like, were you also shocked when you came across uh, you know these various type of uh, responses?
2: So you know that that's uh, um I, I, I know i said that's a great question a few times that, you know, all of these are, uh, but that in particular, it, it, it is because, you know, when you're doing field work in India, particularly in small town India, you have to be very careful about the types of questions that you're asking. And you have to be very careful about the language that you're using. And what I found is, you know, the first question is like you're vague. You ask, would you marry outside of your community? And most people assume that to be your caste group, and they immediately say no. So for me to then ask about, would you? I mean, if you're not going to marry outside your caste group, it's all—it's totally unthinkable for you to marry outside your religion. But for the people who did say that, yeah, you know, I don't, you know, caste like, yeah, sure, maybe I'd marry outside my caste. But then I'd say, okay, well, would you marry outside your religion? And that's when like, oh no, 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 no. I mean, like, that almost became a taboo. You know subject that like it's like you know you're asking someone to come out of the closet or something like that because you know that is just like completely like oh i i could never do i could never you know uh marry someone outside of my religion and the few you know one or two people who i've met who were seeing uh, you know had a partner outside their religion were almost fearful of their lives and they were fearful like you know i don't know how how i'm going to be viewed i don't know you know how our relationship is how we're going to be safe and so you know in a lot of small towns we have to understand that this type of violence continues to take place it takes place among intercaste marriages so of course it will take place between interreligious marriages so it was definitely one of those things that you know it was really a taboo subject that was totally out of the re- bounds of reality for for almost everyone I met.
1: To be honest, this subject is kind of close to my heart. And we were talking about this prior to starting recording. I mean, you know, my parents grew up in two different religions and they got married in the 80s. So it makes me kind of wonder that, wow, what were they kind of thinking to kind of do what they did right back then? Because back then it was barely heard of. But when you kind of fast forward, three decades later and realized that kind of thinking still sticks around in India and I don't know if you've come across there's a very interesting uh, profile on Twitter it's called India Love Project and it features love and marriage outside the shackles of faith caste ethnicity and gender and currently they have over 300 stories and sometimes I really love going through these profiles because it just tells you that you know I would still say that, you know, while there's a majority of people who think a certain way, there are these outliers, would you say, call them?
2: Yeah, so, you know, in in my book, I actually talk about outliers and how even the outliers often have contradictions. So I profile a guy I met in Bhopal named Basan, who was having a love marriage, and uh, he's marrying outside of his caste group. um, And he met his partner on a dating app, which, you know, has so many vestiges of modernity and and progress but also when i asked him like would you marry outside your religion he told me oh i could never marry a muslim and again my job is not to sit and judge anyone or to or to, you know, tell people who they should marry, or how they should behave, but it's just to get their views down. And what I found so interesting in his profile, and in so many other people I met, is that, you know, in a lot of ways, the traditional, you know, sense of marriage, and those values have just moved online, while everything else has remained the same. So I've also met, you know, a lot of people who are not millennials, who are the parents of millennials who've told me, you know, in particular, there's this is one example that really stands out to me. This very well-educated, very uh, wealthy uh, woman I know, whose daughter is my age, told me, You know, that she'll be fine that even if her married daughters, if her daughter marries a girl, but she should not marry a Muslim, and I've heard these kinds of attitudes, you know, shared about different community groups, uh, not just religious groups, but even caste groups, you know, plenty of times while doing my research. And so, in a lot of ways, I do think that you know those those that similar approach to marriage exists, but it's just moved online.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up the whole aspect of online and uh, this gentleman from from Bhopal uh, finding a mate. Uh, on 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 a dating app right um the interesting thing about both peter and me is that we completely skipped that uh phase of getting on uh, you know uh, dating apps or, or uh, i mean or even marriage websites uh for for that matter and there's something very interesting that you've written also in your book in your book where uh, parents are making profiles on these marriage websites for their kids so in a way we're kind of uh, anomalies because we probably skipped that that entire aspect of things how much do you think today because we are talking about millennials um, the importance of digital and technology helping these people find love relationships whatever it is what did you come across in your research
2: so you know i, I came across a bunch of very interesting findings and again just to emphasize a lot of my research is not in Delhi or in South Bombay or in Bangalore but it's in places like Indore and Gwalior and Mysore and and places like that and the first insight that I found which I also share in the book is um, a lot of dating actually happens online but not on dating apps so there'll be men who will add there'll be young men and they'll go and add a thousand women at a time and they expect about 10 or 15 percent of those to actually accept their friend requests so that's about 100 or 150 women and then they'll start they'll message all of them hello it you know or you know just hlo or hai or you know uh hi hi and you know so they'll start these online relationships you know and and out of those hundred people women they've messaged about if you say 10 or 15% reply, that's 10 or 15 conversations that are happening. Um, And and so then, you know, they'll eventually, you know, start talking to people like that. I have one really funny anecdote to share that, you know, uh, a few years ago, I had a friend visiting me in India from California. And so she's a very close friend of mine who I went to college with. And she was flying in from Hong Kong, but what happened is she missed her flight. But she forgot to tell me that she missed her flight, and it was supposed to land at nine pm. And so I, uh, uh, you know, after not hearing from her, I showed up at the airport at about eleven thirty pm, two and a half hours later. And I started milling around, you know, and and eventually I just asked one of the airport guards, you know, there's this flight that came from Hong Kong, you know, if someone's lost, where could I find them? And the airport guard, you know, he's a CISF officer. He looked at me and he started, you know, asking me these questions. Who is this girl? Have you ever met her in real life? Uh, Or, you know, have you, uh, show me a picture of her. Do you really know her? And that's when I realized that, you know, a lot of guys have actually had conversations with women, you know, all over the world. And sort of, you know, are now trying to, you know, Do you get what I'm saying? You know, they now believe that they've become like these real friends with them. And uh, apparently they show up at the airport, you know, trying to, you know, find women like that. And it was just so alien to me, you know, this interaction that I went around and I started asking questions. And I also found that there were a lot of young men who use Tinder to connect with women around the world and actually practice their English. And so they're like, oh, you know, we want to practice English. So they'll, you know, they'll use photos of other people, usually a Bollywood actors, and they'll connect with women all over the world, uh, you know, to practice their English, even though they might not have any opportunity to actually meet them in real life. So that's one aspect. But do you know, answer your question more directly um, you know in a lot of ways uh, the online space has opened up many new opportunities for young people to date and to find partners but it's also opened up opportunities for their parents to do what they were doing otherwise in physical spaces and so to give you an example if you are a catholic who lives in bandra there were maybe a hundred families near you physically living and out of those hundred families maybe 20 had girls for your son But that's only 20. But now when you go online on shadi.com or JeevanSathi.com, you can find Catholic girls all over India. And you can find Catholic, you know, Indian Catholic girls all over the world. And so when you actually create a profile on nokri.com today, it does not assume that you are creating a profile for yourself. There's an option to create a profile for your son, for your daughter, for your niece, nephew, brother, sister, mother, father, you know, all types of different uh, uh, relationships. And then when you when you start answering some of those questions they ask you, uh, it's very detailed. So your skin color, your height, your profession, your income, your education level, your caste, your sub-caste, your gotra, you know, all of that. And so I really, what I write in my book is that the traditional system has remained and, in fact, it's gotten reinforced online.
1: Wow. Th- this is a complete new world for Nader and me, especially online, because we've just never explored uh, this aspect. You know, another thing I wanted to talk about, and uh, this is an anecdote, uh, I think Nader and I have shared before on the podcast, apologies to our listeners who are listening to this for the second time, but uh, I keep uh, bringing up this incident of, uh, so my wife and I got married uh, in church. And in church, you before you get married, you have a marriage course that you need to attend for a couple of days. Now, in that marriage course, there were about fifty couples, so about a hundred uh, of us uh, were there, roughly. And one of the while they went through, and I really appreciate that course because it kind of gears you up actually for marriage, right? It kind of talks about conflict resolution and stuff like that—stuff that you know your parents will never tell you about. And one of the things that they talked and I think it was one of those interactive moments where they were like, okay, so how many of you are uh, having a love marriage? And I kid you not, there were not more than six of us or four or six of us. I'm fuzzy on the details. But there were only that many hands that went up. And I didn't get married that long ago. I'm talking about like 2014. Right? Uh, I was surprised. I was like, wait, there are that many arranged marriages happening. And Fast forward to like eight odd years later, we come across an article that you're featured in in the Times of India, which actually talks that you know millennials are kind of talking about or millennials are having more and more arranged marriages, which kind of doesn't make sense to me in a way, right? If you think about it, like millennials are are positioned as you know the modern the ones who are with digital media, you're talking about them using uh, apps and things like that. But when it comes to relationships and marriages, they still want to stick the traditional way. Tell me about some of that research that you did. What are some of the findings that you had or the reasonings for that?
2: So, you know, first off, I want to start off by saying that what we see in the media today, and also particularly the English and Hindi language media is very disconnected from what's actually happening in India and what do I mean by that who are the people greenlighting Bollywood scripts today they are proteges of Karan Johar they are proteges of Aditya Chopra and they are people business executives at Netflix and Reliance and you know Fox and Disney And these are people who've grown up in South Delhi. These are people who've grown up in South Bombay and have basically, you know, not spent much time where the majority of India lives. And when you look at the advertising and marketing industry, that's even more true if you look at the big advertising firms like JWT just by virtue of you know being able to write good copy and you know ha- you need a mastery of english uh who and 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 you know even to communicate with your clients who are again executives at um uh, uh, you know different multinational corporations you come from a certain background and so therefore you just assume that you know the people who are like you are you know India and to a for a long period of time that worked you know Pepsi, Thumbs Up, all of these have had amazing marketing campaigns but nowadays it's actually very disconnected from what's happening in India and if you look at some of the ad campaign boycotts that have been taking place where a company will come up with a supposedly progressive Aggressive ad campaign and then it's getting boycotted by you know by the public or by some you know minister and some state government somewhere but there's a lot of popular support for that boycott because that ad is not actually resonating with the masses or with the people it's supposed to resonate with so the fab india ad is one example of that but then also there was um a, a similar ad of, I think, that showed the a lesbian couple. Yeah, the Tanish uh, 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 the, Yeah, I, was a Tanishki yeah of a lesbian couple. Because these things are actually not socially acceptable in the consumer base that these people are trying to reach out to. Now, applying that to the question that you had asked, is that at the end of the day, you know, we have to understand that most Indian millennials do not have stable, good paying jobs. So what does that mean? They live at home largely with their families and with their parents now when you're living at home with your parents and your parents find a girl or a boy for you and they tell you you're going to marry this person if you say no what are the options ahead of you or the consequences at first uh, at the very least it can be a bad relationship with your parents but now you take that further and it could mean that you don't have a roof over your head anymore now if you don't have a stable income or a good paying job that means you're homeless and you're out on the streets okay now if you take that one level further that means you're getting intimidation from your family and if you take that to the final step you're facing you know you can be killed and i don't need to tell you guys this but we know of the number of honor killings and you know you know violent cases that happen every you know week in india and that's because you know a lot of young people um, uh, uh, you know, are, are not secure financially or physically to find their own partners, and so what that means for everyone else, the people who we don't see in the newspaper articles, is that they have to fall in line, and they've been, you know, uh, uh, frightened into falling in line. And so, for a lot of these people, they don't actually. What I found most interesting was that a lot of these people are not even making an effort to have relationships. They're not even making an effort to find their own partners because they just know it's going to be an exercise in futility and that their families are going to find someone for them
0: it's you're right you know i mean being in in the metro um, we are definitely far removed from what's really happening in bharat right um when i was reading your book i did come across and because you brought up the whole arranged marriage and the reason as op- multiple reasons behind it uh, this this took me back to riti from jaipur uh, where she says and i quote my parents know me so well I know they will make the right choice for me." Close quote. Today, my parents, uh, Vivan, can't even describe what I do for a living, like, let alone know mm-hmm. my personality. right? I mean, this blind faith in arranged marriage is is just very truly fascinating. But Riddhi also spoke quite a bit about her marriage and the role of her husband in sharing the load. Tell us a little bit about your interaction with her. Like, She agreed to the arranged marriage aspect. But then, obviously, she saw certain issues, problems, whatever. She noticed things. What was your interaction with her like?
2: So, Riddhi, as you know, as someone I devote quite a bit of space in my book to. um, And I want the listeners of this podcast to, you know, if not read the book for the rest of the stuff, but at least for Riddhi's story. Because it really left a mark on me and it made me really um, uh, think a lot about her. And I think about her quite often. Because Riddhi is someone whose sister had a love marriage that did not go uh, go happen, you know, it had its fair, it's share, fair, it's fair share of challenges. And um, then, you know, she sort of decided that I'm not really going to do what my sister did and I'm just going to have an arranged marriage. And, you know, why should I fight my parents anyway? They know me so well. Let me just go along with them. And at first, you know, it was okay. They were never like really good friends or they never really, you know, did things together, but it was an okay relationship. But then Ridhi began to realize that, you know, this relationship is not equal. Like she had to wake up before he did and make food for the family. They would both get back, from work at about 7 p.m. And he would go and lie down on his bed and watch Netflix. And she would, you know, be in the kitchen cooking food for the family, along with the mother-in-law and another sister-in-law. And she began to, you know, she told me, I don't even mind doing this, but I don't like that I've taken for granted, that it's just expected of me. And for someone who has grown up in the 21st century or the 20th century, you know, this type of double standard really stands out to a lot of people, you know, in places like Jaipur that are considered small towns, but are rapidly urbanizing and are now, you know, because of the Internet, so connected to the rest of the world. And so a lot of young women in particular, and and there's other books about this as well, are, begin, are beginning to say that, you know, enough. And we don't want, you know, we're not willing to be second class citizens or partners in these relationships and, and in Ridhi's case, like I really did, you know, I, I, I almost, you know, it, it really stood out to me how she was, you know, felt trapped in this marriage that was supposed to be a stable, happy relationship that her parents would have for her.
1: Wow. You know, and, and actually that kind of brings me to my next question. Nadhar and I keep talking about on the podcast, right, is a lot of our views are very metrocentric and urban dwelling, because that's where we grew up, right? We grew up in Bombay. Uh, we spent most of our lives in Bombay. So a lot of our views on parenting uh, are in there. And I think that's also in a way our relationships, right? The way we've kind of uh, look at our relationships with our wives and even family members for that matter. uh. Having grown up in uh, Delhi and, you know, you said that you do visit your grandparents uh, also, what's the contrast of the gap that you noticed in, you know, especially Indian life in, say, a metro city like a Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore versus, say, even somewhere like a Jaipur or Kanpur uh, or in Ranchi somewhere like that like what's the gap that you notice especially if you can just broadly tell us in terms of thinking and relationships when it comes to
2: so I feel like that gap is actually rapidly shrinking because the people my age who I interview and who I spend time with in Bhopal almost do the exact same things as the people who I interact with and Spend time with in Delhi, and so that's watching movies, going out to eat, um, and you know, spending time with each other. Now, the physical spaces where those interactions happen might be might be different. So, in a place like Bhopal, there's not that many places for young people to hang out with other young people without being seen by someone else or by someone they know. But it is, you know, rapidly increasing. Uh, One thing that I will say that you see more in small town India than in bigger cities is an awareness around caste, which does exist in big cities as well. But I I personally felt that it was more prevalent in small town India where people were more um, attuned to caste identities than people in big cities, which, again, it happens in big cities as well. But it does happen in smaller towns more.
0: You you brought up caste and the way you've juxtaposed urban and the non-urban areas in India. And I I don't want to go like you know deep into rural, but even your tier one, tier two aspects. Have you come across people right in in your field work where uh, say perhaps caste and religion and faith and all of that is probably not the primary concern, but connecting or finding a partner basis, you know, career choices, passion, just the fact that I like you for who you are. Did you come across
1: any such stories?
2: Uh, I did not.
1: All right. Well, that's quite uh, interesting. Now, you know, one thing we noticed while reading your book that, you know, millennials are not kind of tied down by the patriarchal thought thought process, right? About women, when it's like staying at home, cooking, pairing children and things like that. What, what would you attribute to, uh, you know, the reason behind it? Would it be, say, access to more information, uh, you know, traditional g- generational change in thought? What would you attribute to that?
2: I actually dispute that uh, um, assumption that okay. millennials are not tied down to patriarchal values because I actually think that they are. Now I can't speak to previous generations, but um, in an objective analysis of the people that i met i definitely feel that and among men and women equally i met many women who said you know who openly proclaimed to me i'm not a feminist you know and 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 again what is feminism what does that mean it means that men and women should have equal rights But somehow people assume feminism to mean that you hate men, which of course it's not. And so a lot of women I met actually had more pro-men or pro-male attitudes than a lot of men that I met. And if you look at some of the most popular movies in India, they are actually quite patriarchal and misogynistic. So movies like Kabir Singh. Um, with you know, it set the box office on fire. Salman Khan movies are all very misogynistic and, and very popular. And and even movies, you know, that so-called you know prestigious filmmakers make, like Ranjana, which was made by Anand Rai, um, is a very you know problematic film where uh, you know, and and that's an incident that actually takes place almost every week in some shape or form in India. And so I dispute the assertion that millennials are less patriarchal than other generations, because I find them objectively to be the same. There are changes taking place, you know, that you can't deny that, you, uh, you know, certain things that were accept- acceptable 30 years ago are not acceptable today. But I find that to be true for largely an urban um Uh, well-educated or or not even well-educated but you know an urban elite uh, subset of millennials but not you know nationally um, uh, universal or applicable.
1: So you know I'm glad you brought that up and thanks for clarifying it considering now that you know you are going to be the go-to person for the next year where you're going to your book (laughs) is going to be quoted you're going to be called uh, in there talking about millennials because I don't think the whole thing about millennials or the whole focus on millennials is going to go anytime soon uh, for our listeners. And I'm guessing a lot of them are either millennials or kind of, you know, towards the end or the edge of the fringe millennials like us. What what would your message be or like just kind of encapsulating the entire journey that you've been uh, across India and speaking to people? What would you have to say to them?
2: No, you know, that's one question I actually never answer because I don't view it as being my job or I don't even being appropriate for me to give people advice or to share a message. I, you know, I'm 26. And if I were giving advice, I mean, I would not take my advice seriously myself. So I don't find it appropriate to give anyone advice. And, you know, my role at the end of the day is just to sit and listen to people and then write about what they're telling me and everything I've done in my interviews and my book in All the thoughts that I share are essentially reproductions of what I've heard and uh, are the most common responses in my interviews and in the field work that I've done. And I think that that's more interesting than, you know, my views or or that of, you know, some 26-year-old, because the people I'm writing about are really interesting and they are the future of India and we need to listen to them. And you can listen to them through this podcast, but also read about them in my book.
1: That's a great answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, Vivan, thank you so much for sharing all those uh, wonderful stories and um, experiences. Uh, why don't you why don't you just tell us where can uh, our listeners you know get your book and if they want to just know more about you?
2: Absolutely. you know, thanks for having me again. Uh, it was great to have this conversation. My book is available on Amazon, on Flipkart, and on at every major bookstore in uh, Delhi, Mumbai, Bangalore, Hyderabad. Uh, everywhere there used to be signed copies uh, in Delhi, Mumbai, and Bangalore. Uh, I, I I hope they've all the signed copies have sold out because that means the book is selling well. Uh, but yeah, so they're available, you know, all over the country and and at physical and online bookstores.
1: Also, th- thanks so much uh, again, Vivan, for this taking time out and speaking to us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation.
0: It's always nice to hear from the person who belongs to that particular segment, right? Like Vivan is a young millennial himself, and it makes complete sense for him to probably write this book and get a very strong understanding of the this segment that we call Millennial. I mean, we are also Millennials. So in, <laughs> in that sense, yeah, we are the senior Millennials. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, This reminds me of like, school days, Nadir, where you know, you were like, the moment you moved up grade 11, 12, you were, like the seniors in school, now we've like become senior Millennials.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think more importantly was the fact that he his book gives so much insight on uh, millennials living outside of the metros, right? Like, here are you and I, um, based out of Mumbai, and we, we can't even pretend to understand what's really happening uh, in the larger scheme of things, you know, in the real, the, the Bharat, right? And this and this is what I think Vivan really opened her eyes through his book and this conversation that he had that what is really happening out there in, in these
1: non-metro areas. True. And I highly recommend everyone who has a business or is keen to understand what millennials think, right? Because like I mentioned in the episode, I've sat in so many meetings where people who are not really millennials are trying to understand this market. And, you know, while we are still saying millennials, we've already got, you know, the Gen Z that everyone's thinking about and the people making decisions or trying to plan things around them are nowhere, have any idea what they're thinking, right? So I think this book is a good insight into millennials, especially across India, like you mentioned, not just the metro cities. But that's all for this episode. Before we go, here's a quick teaser for our next episode, which will be releasing around Valentine's Day. Now, those of you who've been listening for a while know that we last year did two episodes around Valentine's Day, which was Valentine's Day not. And we talked to two different couples, uh, Danish Aslam and Shruti Seth, and also Jishnu Das Gupta and his wife Shreya. And it was quite interesting just to hear their perspective of being in relationships post-parenting, right? And what's that really like? So this year, we're trying something different. And, you know, it's kind of hard not to ignore the pandemic and the impact it's had on relationships around, right? So we're going to talk to a special couple who actually met and got married during the pandemic. If you're curious, stay tuned to our social media, as always, for teasers from the episode. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram,
0: our guest and I have something in common when it comes to uh, the initial stages of building on a relationship. So uh, I'm going to have a lot of fun, uh, you know, understanding what he did. And then we'll probably compare notes. So don't miss the next episode out. And until then, stay safe. And yeah, we'll see you guys next week.
1: All right. See you then. Bye-bye.